Thank you. If you can keep your place in Matthew 1 for a moment and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Is there anybody here that is glad Brother Tim did not make you read all of those names? Anybody? He didn't do so well on a few of them, and I can imagine what we would have sounded like as a crowd butchering all of those names. We are coming back uh, to that wonderful portion of Scripture in a moment, but I want to take your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, as the Apostle Paul writes to a young preacher named Timothy. He says, again, chapter 3, verse 14, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. That from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished, unto all good works. It's one of those sections of scripture that are utterly filled with truth for us. Verse 14, Paul is reminding Timothy, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned been assured of. Uh, there, are, there is no new truth. There is no new doctrine. There are no new verses. Um, and we need to stop looking for that and just look at the old, old story and the book that God gave to us and continue in that. At holiday seasons, most any pastor that you will talk to will admit that we feel a certain amount of pressure about coming up with a message for Christmas or Easter or whatever that is unique, that is different. But how many different things can you say uh, about the same events? A few years ago, I dealt with that and realized I'm not here to come up with some new aspect about Christmas. I'm just here to tell the old, old story. And, uh, and that, that's enough. That's all that we need because that's the story that matters. Uh, Paul tells us uh, again, verse 15, that from a child that's known the Holy Scriptures. Thank God for moms and dads and grandparents, in some case, great-grandparents, who have made it a point to teach their children the Bible and to pass that along generation to generation. Uh, and Timothy's family was one of those we know. His grandmother was a believer. His mother was a believer. And the faith that was in them now dwelt in him. They managed to pass that along. And then verse number 16, he, Paul reminds Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The first word in verse 16 is the word all. If you are a student of the Bible language, the Bible is originally New Testament written in Greek, and that word all comes from a Greek word that correctly translated means all. Your King James Bible is correctly translated. It's one of the things I'm trying to put there. All scriptures given by inspiration of God. How many would agree that John 3.16 is inspired by God? How many would agree that Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is inspired by God? Okay? All scripture, there's no exception to that. If, it, if it's in this book, it's inspired by God. That word means breathed out. Uh, do you know that you cannot talk without breathing? 
it's impossible to do that. God's designed us that way, and that's how God gave us the Bible. It's not a collection of stories. It's not a collection of fables and fairy tales. Peter reminds us that holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen. This is a thus saith the Lord book, and all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and therefore, verse 16 says, and is profitable. There's no verse in this Bible that is not of value to us. The older I get in the Lord, the more I read through the Bible, the more I find out how every part of it is just tied together, it's linked together. And, and, and I'll read a passage, maybe I've read it dozens and dozens of times, and then all of a sudden it'll just, the light will come on, it's like, wait a minute, I read something you know, uh, many books ago in the Bible, and, 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 and I'll look up a verse like, there it is. I, it's not that it wasn't there. It's just I wasn't smart enough or observant enough to see it. We have a wonderful book in our hands this morning, the entire Word of God. It's all inspired by God, and it is all profitable. Now we go back to Matthew 1, and we read a genealogy. Aren't those exciting? The Bible has a lot of them. Uh, you will find them in the book of Numbers. Uh, you will find them in the book of First Chronicles, I mean chapter after chapter after chapter. Uh, some of them are names that we would recognize like Abraham and David and so forth. But in a lot of those genealogies, they are just names that they don't connect with us at all. We don't, we don't uh, join them to any major biblical event, but they're in the Bible. That means they're scripture, Correct. That means that they're inspired by God. God said, put that in there. And that also means it's profitable to us. Everybody okay with that? All right. Uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1 as I approach the Christmas season every year. Uh, I'll mention more of this tonight. I have some customs, some traditions, if you will, uh, that have just been a part of my, my relationship, my time with the Lord at this time of the year. And reading through the Christmas story uh, on a repeated basis for the pretty much the month of December is a part of that. The Christmas story is not twas the night before Christmas, okay? Uh, that's all fun and games and stuff. I'm talking about uh, the events recorded in the Word of God in Matthew 1 and 2 and in Luke chapters 1 and 2. And... Uh, you know, I used to read the first 17 verses like uh, I think maybe a lot of people might. And it's just like, oh yeah, that's a genealogy and move on to the good stuff. And then I grew up and matured a little bit and realized the first 17 verses of Matthew, they're the good stuff too. They're the good stuff too. And we're going to walk through it. We're not going to read every name again. Uh, we're, we're, we're not going to do that. But I want, to, I want to draw a few things. My Bible says in Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is pure. Every single word of God is pure. What can be found in a genealogy? A couple of things that I, I have goals today. Number one, I'd like us all to walk away with a brand new appreciation for our Bible. I find it sad that the average Christian seems to be bored with the Bible. We can spend hours on our phone searching Facebook for meaningless stuff and minutes in our Bible. And we check off our three chapters and sometimes treat it as a chore. I'd like today for the Holy Spirit to awaken something in us to say, I hold in my hand the only miraculous book on planet Earth. 
there's none like it. And I've only begun to scratch the surface in the wonders of this book. And I would, I, I'm asking God to do it for me, to do it for you, to say, if that's in there and I've missed that or I've, I've or underappreciated that, what else am I missing? And go, go at it with a new zeal. Number two, I'd like us to walk away today with a greater appreciation of the God of miracles. Because these first 17 verses, that's what it's all about. It's what it's all about. I want to show you a few things this morning from the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ as contained in these first few verses of Matthew that I hope will be a blessing. Number one, and Brother Tim alluded to this, first thing I want you to notice as we look into it, there is no person's life that is beyond the grace of God. There's no person's life beyond the grace of God. Genealogies in the Bible traditionally only mention men. Sorry, ladies. It's just really the way it is. Part of that is because the bloodline is traced through the males in, within a family. We, we inherit our blood from our fathers. Uh, Joseph was not Jesus' father, the Holy Spirit. God the Father was his father. That was divine blood flowing through his veins, the eternal blood, the book of Hebrews tells us. So most of the time, a genealogy, inheritance, all of those things went through the male lineage. But Matthew breaks with that tradition and adds the names of several ladies for us. And, and the ladies that God chose to name in here stand out in a remarkable way. The first one is found in verse number three. And Judas begat Perez and Zerah. They are twins, twin boys of Tamar. This is the first lady that is found in this genealogy. Now, we don't have a lot of time this morning to go back to all of it, but you might want to write beside this verse in your Bible, Genesis 38. This is where the story of Tamar is found. Tamar married Judah's eldest son. This, the Bible says that, that Judah's son was a very, very wicked man. Doesn't tell us what he did, but he was so wicked that the Lord slew him. And uh, he died, and Tamar and, and her husband had never had a child. According to the tradition of the day, if a, if a husband and wife were married and the man died and there was no child, the next, the next eldest brother in line was supposed to marry her and continue the family tradition there. And so Tamar got married to the next guy uh, in line, Judah's next son, who was also wicked before the Lord, and God slew him as well. She's a widow twice over. Judah had one more son, a very young man by the name of Shelah, and Judah said, look, my son is, is young, he's not of marrying age, but uh, I want you to just uh, uh, stay put, and when he is old enough, we'll, we'll, we'll follow the tradition, and, and he will marry you, you will be cared for, uh, and so forth. And so Tamar went back and lived in her, her, her mom and dad's house, waiting for this boy to grow up. It's not that she volunteered for any of this. If you will, her, her story's a pretty sad one. She's a widow twice over. She's had a lot of heartache. 
Uh, she sadly was married to two wicked, wicked young men, and undoubtedly her home life was nothing to talk about or, or to write home about. So she's waiting. The years roll by. Shayla grows up. He is of legal marrying age in that, that culture, but for some reason, the, the marriage was never arranged. That was always done by the parents. I don't know if Judah was worried that his younger son would, would uh, follow in his brother's footsteps. I, I don't know why, but he just didn't do it. And Tamar got impatient. But here ever get impatient? And we try to take matters in our own hands. And Tamar did, and she made a grave mistake. She really did something wrong. The Bible said she thought Judah is not keeping his word. He's not, he's not going to arrange the marriage, his younger son. I should be uh, an heir to the house of Judah, and it's not going to happen. So the Bible said she cast her garments of widowhood from off of her and put on the attire of an harlot. She went out and sat in a wayside place where she knew her father-in-law would be passing by in his job as a shepherd, and she enticed him. And she had an illegitimate affair with her father-in-law. She entrapped him because she became pregnant with his children. They were twins. Perez and Zerah would be their names. It's funny, when Judah found out that uh, his daughter-in-law was with child, he immediately ordered that she be burnt with fire. Now, he had been in immoral, but he ignored that. He didn't know that that prostitute he had been with was actually Tamar. She hid her identity from him. It's amazing how quick we are to stone and burn everybody else that sins and ignore our own. Beware of people like that. Well, uh, Tamar kind of figured that might happen. And uh, in, in lieu of payment for her services, she got Judah to give her his scepter and his signet ring that would be very unique to him. And when uh, uh, the, you know, the authorities came to carry out the, pen, the punishment on Tamar, she said, well, I'll tell you this much. Uh, uh, she brought forth the, the signet ring and the scepter and said, whoever these belong to, that's the father of my children. And all of a sudden, Judah realized he was caught. And he married her. And they had those children together. That was Tamar, a fallen woman. That was Tamar, a woman that strayed. That was Tamar that pretty much messed up as bad as a lady can mess up. Do you understand her name is in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ? Follow with me. The second lady that is named here is found in... Um, Oh, let me see where do I want you to go. Verse number five, a man named Salmon begat. Uh, it's actually Boaz. That's the Old Testament name. It's Boaz here of Rahab. We know her as Rahab. Now we're going, we're going way back in time again. Rahab wasn't even a Jewish girl. Rahab was a Canaanite woman that lived in the cursed city of Jericho. We read about her in the book of Joshua. Not only was she a Canaanite, a pagan woman, the Bible says she was a harlot. In fact, almost every time you see her name mentioned in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, she's referred to as Rahab the harlot. Now, that's what she did. 
Um, and uh, we, we know when the spies, Joshua sent two spies in to search out Jericho, that those spies lodged in the house of Rahab. There was nothing immoral that took place there. But we read in, in, in the book of Joshua, I believe it's chapter number two, that, that Rahab shares a testimony. She said, look, we know who you are. In fact, we knew when you came out of Egypt 40 plus years ago, we heard all about it. We heard about the, the crossing of the Red Sea. We heard about the Passover and all of those things. We've heard about every victory you've had over your enemies in the wilderness. And the, tr the truth is, for 40 plus years, we've been terrified of you. For 40 plus years, we've been, we've been dreading this day and now you're here. And she said, look, I believe that your God is God. And Rahab got converted. Rahab the what? Rahab the harlot got converted. She said, I'm going to keep your secret safe. Just make me a promise. When you take the city, spare me and my family. And the spies said, look, if it, uh, uh, you tie this scarlet cord outside your window. She lived on the city wall. And on the day that uh, God gives us the victory, uh, whoever's in this house with you will be spared. And, of course, her family was there. We're not sure how many that entailed. But Rahab was spared. She was a Canaanite harlot who got saved. Jewish scholars believe she married one of those two spies that she hid that night and protected. Uh, if so, his name was Salmon. And... Uh, Rahab and Salmon had a little boy that they named Boaz. And his name would be found all through the book of Ruth. So we have Tamar, who really messed up bad. You have Rahab, who started out as a, a pagan Canaanite, a prostitute who got saved. Those are the first two. Now look in verse 5. Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. She wasn't a Jewish girl either. The Moabites were a cursed people. If, if you go in your Bible all the way to the uh, book of Genesis, I want to say chapter 17, we read about Abraham had a nephew named Lot. Lot was a saved man. We know that from the New Testament. He, the Bible calls him a just man. He, he didn't live for God. He was a carnal uh, believer at the very best. Lot was a man who was enticed by the wealth and the pleasure that the city of Sodom and the city of Gomorrah held to offer. And little by little, he kept moving his family closer and closer to one day. He's not only living in Sodom, uh, he's got a position of authority and power there. He's making a lot of money there. And he brought corruption upon his entire family. Most of his family died when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. His two youngest single daughters came out with him. They were the only survivors. His wife came partway, and she looked back and, and, and perished in that. But he had these two daughters. They lived up in a mountain. Lot, by all, all uh, indications from the Bible, may have been an alcoholic. He would get so blindly drunk that in the morning he could not remember anything from the night before. Those two girls that he raised in Sodom, he got them out of Sodom, but he never got Sodom out of them. They contrived a plan and said, one at a time, we're going to make our dad drunk, we're going to have a relationship with our dad, and we're going to have a child by him, otherwise we're going to die childless and we're going to die uh, unmarried and so forth. And so his wicked daughters did that. He was in a drunken stupor, and his daughters each gave birth to a son, one the son was named Ammon, the father of the Ammonites. The other one was named Moab, the father of the Moabites. 
What a terrible beginning. By the way, it wasn't the little boy's fault that his parents and grandparents messed up. The Moabites grew into a race of people that stood against God's people. They fought against the Israelites as they were leaving Canaan. They tried to deliberately corrupt the Canaanites with him, or the Israelites with immorality and idolatry, and God's judgment had to fall. And the Moabites became a cursed people. That's who Ruth was. She was a Moabite. She was from a cursed group of people, and I preached about a little of her story this last Sunday night, uh, how that uh, her her in-laws, future in-laws, Elimelech and Naomi, they backslid and got out of the will of God and went to Moab during a drought. Are you you okay with the history lesson? I I know there's an awful lot here, but it's the backstory that makes Matthew 1 just so absolutely amazing to me. Elimelech and Naomi went to Moab. They had two boys with them. Uh, They found... uh, uh, wives for them, both Moabite girls, Ruth and Orpah. By the way, did you know Oprah Winfrey? Her mother wanted to name her Orpah, but misspelled her on the birth certificate. That's why she's Oprah. Just thought I'd throw that Bible truth out there for you. Um, and uh, Orpah decided to keep her Moabite ways. And when Naomi got right with God and came home, she stayed and, and never changed. But Ruth got saved. Ruth, Ruth said, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And Ruth the Moabitess came back, and in that wonderful little book of Ruth, those four chapters, uh, we see that God took this man Boaz, uh, a wealthy older man in the town of Bethlehem, and he fell in love with Ruth, and God put them together, and they had a little boy named Obed. By the way, in a day and age where most people would have frowned on Ruth because she was a Moabitess, It's interesting that of all the men in that village that she would end up with, it would be Boaz. I believe part of that is because Boaz's mom was Rahab the harlot. He he knew what it was, was to grow up in a home where everybody criticized and talked about his mom behind her back. And he had a heart for the down and outer. He had a heart for the outcast. And uh, so we see Ruth, and here she is. She has a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse has a son named David. And 14 or so generations later, David has a descendant named Jesus. This all in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon, the wisest human being that ever walked the planet outside of Christ, of her that had been the wife of Urias. David already had six wives, but you know the story that one night when he should have gone to battle, should have gone to war, he stayed back in Jerusalem. And that night he saw a woman washing herself and he, he, he committed adultery with her, brought her to the palace. Uh, and they, she conceived a child from that union. Uh, they tried to cover it up. They tried to bring Uriah, her husband, back from the battlefield to make him think the baby was his. And Uriah had far more integrity than David did. So David finally had her husband killed on the battlefield so he could marry her. Bathsheba was a married lady who messed up. Who messed up. And yet I find her name in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There is no person's life that is beyond the reach of the grace of God. The prophet Isaiah made a simple statement. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. You will never fall so low 
that he can't reach you there. You just look through that. We're, we're, just, we're just taking a few minutes of time. I'm just giving you references to, to Genesis and Joshua and, and Ruth and, and uh, uh, Second Samuel uh, about these four ladies. And by the way, there's some men in here that messed up too. But we, we, God, God put these ladies' names in here, and that's an unusual thing. I believe personally that is God's way of highlighting the grace of God, saying, yeah, you might have a past, but with me you have a future. Amen. Where would we be if it wasn't for Christ? I got saved as a 14-year-old kid riding a bus to church. Um. My mom was saved, but never grew in grace. My dad didn't get saved till I was in college. My dad hated church. He hated preachers, the, the whole nine yards. There was nobody else at the time in our family that was saved at all. We didn't have that background. We didn't have that heritage. I wonder if I'd even be alive today if it wasn't for the fact that God saw, God saw fit to send some bus workers by my house to knock on the door and invite us to church. See, we all have a past, Brother Tim mentioned in Sunday school, he grew up different than I did. He grew up in a preacher's home. But uh, you realize whether you grew up in a Christian home or not, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, you'd be as lost as anybody in this world. Amen. It is the grace of God. Yes, By the grace of God, I am what I am, is what Paul said. Am I right? And he was a blasphemer. He was a murderer. He, he goes on with his own pedigree of sin, and he said, that's what I was. But by the grace of God, that's what I'm not. Thank God for his grace. You may, you may be here today and you've never been saved and part of you part of you doesn't think God loves you enough or that God can save you because you know what you've been. You know what you've done. That's a lie straight from the mouth of the devil. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and the world is, is not the planet, it's the people, every single one. Read the headlines of the of the. The, the terrible things going on in our world, God loved all of them enough to send his son to be their savior. When I look at this genealogy, by the way, my heart just kind of goes off on it, and I don't want to just be repetitious for the sake of, uh, of saying the same thing over and again. I, I'm, I'm thrilled that there's no person's life beyond the touch of God's grace. Don't ever get tired of seeing somebody get saved. Don't ever get tired of seeing somebody come back to God. Get off your, your wicked high horse. Well, yeah, yeah, let's see if that's for real. That's not your job. Your job is to rejoice that Amen. the prodigal came home. Amen. Amen? There's no person's life that cannot be reclaimed by the grace of God. But I must hurry. There's a second thing I see from this genealogy. There is no power on earth that can stop the plan and purpose of God. There's none. There is none. If you'll keep your place here and go all the way back to Genesis, the book of beginnings, chapter 12. And once you found that, keep your place. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Anybody here ever had a bad day? Okay, <laughs> yeah. Anybody ever have, have a day, if you could do it over, you most certainly would? Imagine a, a world in which nobody ever had a bad day. Nothing bad ever happened. Nobody said anything they shouldn't say. Nobody 
nobody ever did something they shouldn't do. Everybody did right. Everybody was perfect. Can you imagine such a place? Well, that's the world Adam and Eve were created and lived in. Genesis chapter 3, you know what happened. The serpent, verse 1, was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not touch of it, eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. First lie recorded in the Bible. The devil was a liar from the beginning, the Bible says, and the father of it, John 8, 44. He lied to her. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The devil's lie is always, you don't want to follow that God person. He, he's, he's holding stuff back from you. He doesn't really want you to be happy. Let me see. He gave Eve a perfect husband. He gave Adam a perfect wife. No nagging. And all the to-do lists got done every day. Can you even imagine that? I, I think that, that Adam was probably the most stunningly handsome person that ever lived. And I think his wife uh, was, was the most beautiful woman that ever lived. They never had to think, do I put a paper bag over her head before we go out to eat? They had all of that. They had harmony. They had peace. They lived in a world without crime. They lived in a world without CNN. Uh, they, can you imagine how awesome that would be? Uh, they, 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 there, was, there were no drugs. There were, I mean, it was, there was no sickness. Uh, there, there was nothing. It was the most perfect place. And the, the devil, devil comes along saying, God's withholding stuff from you. The devil's a liar and we're fools for believing it. But she did. The Bible said she was deceived in the transgression. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband, next two words, church, with her. He was standing there for this conversation. Now, any good husband, if he sees a snake around his wife... <laughs> Going to beat that snake with a stick. Any ladies want to say amen there out loud? Yeah. See, that's, that's what the fall did. Uh, Adam, Adam said nothing. I think Adam let her be the fall guy. She's going to eat it, and he's going to stand there and watch, see if she drops dead. This is my opinion uh, on that. And she didn't die. The Bible says she gave unto her husband with her, and he did eat. He ate voluntarily in defiance against God, in unbelief against God. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves aprons. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You understand this is the worst day of human history where sin has entered the human race. These two perfect people that lived in a perfect world, that had a perfect relationship with God, had just thrown it all away for a piece of fruit. 
for one stinking moment of, of some kind of pleasure that makes no sense. They, they totally disobey God, and, and suddenly their world is just caved in around them. They're not seeing the beauty of creation anymore. They're not hearing the birds. They're not looking at these, these wonderful uh, trees that God's planted around them and all the bounty that God's given to them. They're not seeing the beauty of their spouse and, and, and thinking about all that God's given them. They're ashamed, and they're dirty, and they've never felt this way before and suddenly they hear God walking through the garden calling out their name and for the first time in their existence they don't want to be around God they don't want God to see them like this by the way God had already seen and so they sew fig leaves together they try to hide themselves you can run but you're not going to hide from God so so don't even try God confronts them they're forced to confess what they've done the wages of sin is what death yeah they were still physically alive but spiritually they died that day and 932 years later thereabouts Adam would die we don't know how long Eve lived before she would die and death came upon all men for that all have sinned because of them look if you would to verse number 14 the Lord God said unto the serpent because thou hast done this thou art cursed above all cattle above every beast of the field Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity, that is war. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It, that's the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head. You crush a serpent's head, he dies. And thou shalt bruise his heel. This is called the proto-evangelium. How many are proud of me that I know Latin? Say, what's it mean? Have no idea. I just know what it's called. No, it means first gospel. There on that awful day, on that awful day, man had destroyed paradise. But God said, but I'm going to send a savior that's going to fix it all. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. I know we're getting a lot of history, Bible history this morning, but... Told you, the whole Bible's tied together. Verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And here it is, And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That was a promise of the Messiah is now going to come through Abraham. See, God had a plan. God didn't have to scramble to come up with a plan in Genesis 3.15. The Bible says that the Savior is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. God knew what Adam and Eve were going to do, and God said, but I've already got it taken care of. And all the way down through the centuries, God's plan has been carried on. All, uh, the devil's tried to mess it up time after time after time. We read in the book of Exodus that a Pharaoh arose over Egypt and he tried to wipe out all the males that were born in the country of Egypt. All the Israelites were there as slaves. All of them were. If he'd have succeeded, succeeded in wiping out all the boys, the lineage of Abraham would cease to have existed and the, the plan of God would have been stopped. But you're not going to do that. God just said, hey, Pharaoh, 
Watch, God turned out the lights and made it dark. And then God sent flies and frogs and turned the river into blood and hail and lightning and thunder and all kinds of stuff. Finally, the death of the firstborn. And then God parted the Red Sea and said, my people are out of here and they ain't coming back. Pharaoh lost. You're not going to defeat God. Uh, You can have the biggest army in the world behind you. You're not going to defeat the plan of God. The book of Esther, a wicked man by the name of Haman, hated the Jewish people. Long story there, long backstory. But, but he, he tricked the king of Persia into signing an irrefutable decree stating on a given day every Jew in the world was to be slaughtered. Everyone, not just the men, but the women as well. It was Satan's plan. We're going to wipe out this promise. We're going to wipe out the plan of God. We're going to wipe out the hope of a savior. But God had already put things into place and a little Jewish girl had won a beauty contest. She had become the queen of Persia. Nobody knew she was a Jewish girl. And she was right there and she had not only the ear of the king, she had the heart of the king. And God used Esther to stop Haman's wicked plot. And God's people were not only not destroyed, they destroyed their enemies and came out stronger than before. I'm just telling you, you're not going to stop the plan of God. As we look at this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, there are some great names. There's Abraham, we mentioned him. There was his son Isaac. There was Boaz. There was David. There's a man here, he's called Jehoshaphat. He's Jehoshaphat. He was an absolutely godly king uh, who made very few mistakes during his reign. He loved God passionately. There was Hezekiah uh, and so forth. I mean, there were, some, there were some kings like Joash and Josiah that God used to bring national revival. They're in this list in these 17 verses. I mean, men who stood for God, men who loved God. But in this same list, there are some scoundrels. There are some terrible, terrible people. There's a king in there by the name of Rehoboam, Solomon's son. He was a fool. He went into idolatry eventually. Eventually he got right with God, but not until he had caused civil war. And the kingdom of Israel was split into Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Caused damage that lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years. He was, he was just a terrible king. There was a king by the name of Manasseh. We read about him in verse number 10. His dad was Hezekiah, godly king. Manasseh was anything but. Manasseh committed human sacrifice. Manasseh is credited in Jewish history of taking the prophet Isaiah, the book of Isaiah in our Bible. Uh, He didn't like the sermons that Isaiah was preaching. He had him uh, placed inside of a hollow log, tied up, And they used a giant saw and cut the prophet Isaiah in half while he was still alive. That was Manasseh. He filled the temple that Solomon built uh, with all the symbols of the zodiac and all the, the idols and symbols of paganism that he could find and defiled uh, the, the holy temple of God. Uh, eventually, they nailed the doors of the temple shut and it wasn't used for you. He's on this list. God said, do your worst, Manasseh. My plan still stands. Uh, I'm either going to do it with you or I'm going to do it without you, but I'm going to do it. Aren't you glad that God's in control? Aren't you glad that God's not going to fail? I know we're getting distressed about everything going on in our world. We have been for a long time in the last two or three years. That's only increased. But would you understand this? The Most High still ruleth in the kingdom of men. He's still in control. Uh, The Lord is still on his throne. He did not abdicate. You're not going to vote him out. 
There's not going to be a referendum uh, uh, against him. Uh, Psalm 2 said, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us cast their bands asunder from us. You go ahead and try to drive God away. He ain't going anywhere. Because, you see, I've read the last part of this, this wonderful, miraculous book in our hand, and it just says he wins it all. And, and, and all the ones that make fun of him, the Bible says every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. There's a day that Whoopi Goldberg is going to stop cackling and she's going to be on her face acknowledging I was wrong and he is God. And everybody like it. I think Whoopi's best, best Hollywood role was playing the hyena. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Enough of my commercial. All I'm saying is this. We need to stop acting like the unsaved world, throwing our hands up in despair. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. No, the sky is not going to fall, but Jesus is coming in that sky, and he's taking us out of here. He wins. Read through the genius. There, there are good kings. There are bad kings, but God's plan never skipped a beat. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem all the rest of us. God's plan. And I know sometimes our life has ups and downs. And we don't know what God's doing. We don't know why God's not doing something. We're praying and we just don't see the answer. We wonder. Read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And would you find out, oh, he's right where he always was. His plan's going forward. Trust him. I need to hasten. I think I could go a while longer, but you probably don't want me to. There's a third thing I see from this, this genealogy. Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. From the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. I have for years studied this verse to find out What's important about that? 14 generations, three sets of them. There's, there's got to be a significance to it, and I haven't found it. If you do, please share it with me because uh, I keep looking for it. Uh, but I, I said it a few years ago. It doesn't really matter. I, it, it's in there for a reason, but I, I think it's, it's a reason that maybe is uh, more obvious than we'd like it to be. There is no period of time, no period of time in which God is not working. None at all. The first set of generations, 14 of them, Abraham to David, that's when God's plan came together. The family of Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then his sons and then Judah and then David and so forth. All of that is coming together. David is on the throne and it's Israel's uh, uh, where it ought to be. Jerusalem's the capital and so forth. And it's like, yeah, we can see the hand of God at work in there. Then from David until the carrying away into Babylon, everything falls apart. Everything. There were some good kings. There were some terrible kings. The nation splits up. The north never had a good king. The south, uh, it was about 50-50. And finally, that even fell apart. And they're all carried away into captivity. And from that point until the birth of Christ, things seemed to come to a standstill. Do you realize the 400 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem are called the silent years? They're also called the dark years. Because once the prophet Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, laid down his pen, 
and stared at the page where he had written down the words God had told him to write, that was the last time God spoke to his people for 400 years. During that time, they were overrun already by Babylon and Persia, then the Greeks, then Assyrian named Antiochus Epiphanes, and then finally the Roman Empire. They prayed. God, where are you? God, why aren't you keeping your promises? Why aren't you doing something? But God was busy. Just because you don't see him, you don't hear him, you don't feel him, doesn't mean that he's not there. He hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Did he not? I haven't got a gym story. I'm almost done. You need one. I'm, I'm, I'm working with my new prosthetic leg. I got it this last Monday. Ton of adjustments, ton of things that I have to learn on that. And as excited as I am about it, my trainer, Sam, I think he's more excited than I am. He couldn't wait for me to come in on Friday, and, he, and he's looking at it. He's taking pictures of it and all that kind of stuff, wanted to see what it could do. And I told him uh, some things I had already learned, and they're going to make a bunch of adjustments this coming Wednesday and so forth and, and, and so forth. But we were going to try the big three. Friday is squat, bench press, and deadlift day. Squat and deadlift are the tough ones. I have to get down low. Uh, one, I'm carrying weight on my shoulder down. The other, I'm lifting weight up. And we weren't sure how the new foot was going to relate to all of that. We weren't sure if the new knee was going to function well or lock up or give out. We had no idea how it was going to work. We started with the squats, and I, I, I've got the bar on my back. We didn't even put a ton of weight on there, but I could tell just on unracking and stepping back that this was very, very different. didn't feel right. And now I, I had to go down. He had a prescribed number of, of reps. And so I'm going down, he gave me a certain cadence, a, a certain uh, time that, that I count on my mind, so many seconds down, hold, so many seconds back up, and so forth. And I'm about to do it, and, and, and the truth is, I was, I was somewhat nervous. Uh, you know, losing your balance with weight in your shoulders, can you can hurt yourself real bad. And I was just about to go down, and right in this ear, I heard, I'm right here. If you start losing it, I've got it. Isn't that an awesome thing? That's my trainer. Sometimes we sense the presence of God like that, don't we? But sometimes we don't. That doesn't mean he's not there. He's always right there. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. We're just looking at a genealogy, the part we speed read. Don't do that anymore. Don't do that anymore because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Quickly, there's no person's life that is beyond the reach of the grace of God. None. Not yours, not mine, not anybody's. Don't you give up. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on them. Don't give up praying for them. God loves it when prodigals come home. Number two, number two, you need to understand there's no power on earth that's going to stop the plan and the purpose of God. So don't despair. Longfellow thought there is no peace on earth, and he despaired. 
But he finally came back to the truth of God's word and said, yeah, there is. It's Jesus Christ. There is a hope. He's coming again. He's going to rule and reign forever and ever. Let's, let's get away from this attitude of unbelief that acts like God's not in control. Number three, there's no time, no period of time in which God is not at work. You may feel like I'm praying and nothing's happening. Just keep on praying. Part of the Christmas story is the birth of John the Baptist. His parents, the Bible says, were well stricken in age. Zacharias and Elizabeth, his dad and his mom. Well stricken in age. Zacharias went into the temple one day and an angel of the Lord, Gabriel, appeared to him and said, Zacharias, don't be afraid. Thy prayers have been heard. Wait a minute, Zacharias is an old man. I don't think he and Elizabeth are praying for a child anymore. They've given up on that. But when they were a young couple, they were praying for God to give them a child. And I'm sure they prayed for years and years and years and years. And then life catches up. And they just said, I guess it wasn't part of God's plan. And they had no idea. God heard the prayer. He was just giving something better than just a baby. He was giving them a baby in their exceptionally old age, which is a total miracle of God. And that child was going to be the messenger of Christ. There's no time in which God's going to give up on you and stop working. Trust him. Can we bow for prayer? Father, I, I, I thank you for my Bible.